Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Enough Wicker. We have a wonderful guest with us today, Mr. Jared Clayton Brown, uh, a scholar who during his tenure at Bowling Green University wrote a thesis called Sex in the City Platinum Edition, How the Golden Girls Altered American Situation Comedy. I'm Lauren. And I'm Sarah. And we have Jared with us. Hi, Jared. Hi there. Thank you all so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came to write a paper called Sex in the City Platinum Edition? And uh, just like, you know, a, sort of your evolution as a Golden Girls fan and how you ended up making it your thesis. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to kind of go back a little bit where where was it we're in 2021 now and so I'm about eight years removed from actually writing this paper so <laughs> you all have really kind of put me back in touch with a kind of a past part of my life that I really haven't touched in a while so um but when I earned my master's of arts and popular culture studies degree from uh, Bowling Green State back in 13 um one of the kind of the tenets that the professors gave us um because I did not go to graduate school planning to write this, like this specific paper. I did not have that in mind necessarily. I knew I was interested in television, but I wasn't quite sure what form that was going to take. But one of the things that professor said to us was, and I just, and for some reason this just sticks with me because it's kind of hilarious when I think about it, but literally if you could mate with your subject, you would do it. Like you have to be that interested in whatever it is you're writing about because of the intensity of the connection and the relationship that you're gonna to have to have to it to get through this process. That is and, one way to say it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, ironically speaking, thinking about, with all due respect, four old women and uh, one young gay black guy, but that's a whole other story, so. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway. But yeah, no, like, I mean, I have always been a fan of the show. Um, I came to the show kind of as what I consider a second wave fan sort of because when it was initially on from 85 into 92 I was in diapers going you know essentially when it started so clearly I wasn't watching but I can honestly remember the first time I was exposed to it and I couldn't tell you the episode but I just remember I was about six living in Detroit with my mom growing up and I can remember it being a Saturday night and the show coming on television and me sitting eating chili cheese fries, which anybody who's from Detroit, you know that that's a Detroit, a Detroit staple. But I can remember like the opening credits and like seeing the plane in the sky and all that. And I just have that memory, like just, it's just one of those, like it just stuck there. And then I can remember a couple of times, you know, as a kid, it being on in syndication locally. But for me, when I really kind of got into the meat and potatoes of it, I was in college at Eastern Michigan University where I did my bachelor's and being in a dorm room, just flipping through channels and coming across it. And I was like, yeah, I sort of remember this and just, you know, between classes and started watching it. And I was just like, my God, like, this is hilarious. <laughs> and so really over the course of, you know, four years in college, I just really just, you know, and you know, with, uh, Reruns, you know how that is, they're on constantly. And this is oh, before yeah. like you could get DVDs and stuff of you know full series. So literally every single day, that became a point of television for me, whether it was in because I mean at that point it was on lifetime and yeah. it was on, you know, literally like three or four, you know, I did three or four different times of the day. So you can <laughs> catch it either at night or in the morning. And so I was watching it, you know, both and just digesting it. And it was just unbelievable, like. I was just kind of like, where has this been and how did I miss it? You know. <laughs> you back in the day, you know, eating chili cheese fries to overdosing on it in college. It's great. I, I also remember the lifetime where you would just at, at pretty much any meal of the day, you could sit down. And exactly. <laughs> there would be a block of programming. Yeah. So how, uh, so taking, you know, your professors, uh, you need to mate with the subject, where, where did you kind of meld this like newfound obsession into, um, you know, writing, writing the paper? Well, I kind of got lucky in that my uh, thesis chair actually is a sitcom scholar. Mm, um, wow. She wrote her doc, Dr. Becca Cragen, shout out, shout out, because I definitely couldn't have done this without her and her guidance. <laughs> But she was actually a uh, 
kind of an expert on the show Roseanne and she wrote her doctorate on that so and like I said I did go into graduate school knowing that I wanted to write about television and it just kind of made sense in thinking about it and then kind of once I realized what I was going to have at my disposal and working with her and her guidance and all the you know acumen that she was able to offer to me um kind of one of the key points or one of the key uh, subjects that I talked about um, in my research, there was a guy who wrote a a book called, literally called The Sitcom. Um, And it's basically the Bible of situation comedy in academic scholarship. Brett Mills, he's out of England. Um, And it was just one of those, you know, key books, like you basically cannot get around writing about situation comedy in an academic setting without reading this book or referencing this book somehow. Um, And that actually led me into the first chapter of what I wrote about, um, which was my argument that the Golden Girls, I think, introduced what we consider the first um, adult female ensemble in situation comedy. Um, Excuse me. You did have, I think, you know, you certainly had shows where women were at the center um, you know, I Love Lucy, Mary Tyler Moore, and, you know, things of that nature, but men still kind of, you know, factored in, you know, in different capacities in those shows, whereas I think the Golden Girls was the first time that we saw women really holding down the fort, and men, you know, kind of came in and out, but, you know, they were never central to those stories, Um, right, and I argued in what I wrote about um, one of the things that I really looked at, and again, kind of, kind of coming from the Brett Mills camp of it, you know what you're getting when you look at a genre, you know, whether it's comedy, drama, or, you know, anything really, you know the elements that are going to be there. But what I think of the Golden Girls, there are just some very specific elements that I think were involved there. And what I really looked at, or one of the things I really looked at, I should say, was the, or were the characters that were involved. Um, you had what I thought of as the leader of the pack, which was Dorothy, and then the sex pot, obviously Blanche, the, the kind of the naive innocent, which was the Rose character, and then the wise elder, obviously the Sophia. And I think going forward in kind of the canon of television situation comedy, you saw shows designing women, Sex and the City, Hot in Cleveland, uh, Living Single, Girlfriends, just the list goes on and on and on of all these different programs that, you know, it's very apparent if you look closely enough and read them, how they're reaching back to kind of that original source. I mean, if you, think of, if you think of the leader of the pack element, Dorothy, you know, it's in when I think of the leader of the pack, it's kind of the voice of reason for the group or the mama bear, you know, the protector, kind of the, you know, that she's the one who's in charge, you know, for one reason or another. And Dorothy definitely, to me, held that position. Um, she definitely, I mean, you know, she got into her own little, you know, scrapes and things, but, you know, at the end of the day, she really kind of was the one who took charge of, you know, that household. And I think we saw that, you know, to me, the really kind of just, they almost just kind of like took it away from, or tried to take NBC's like brass ring sort of designing women the very next season was on television. And it was, I mean, not a ripoff because it definitely wasn't because it was definitely funny and entertaining in its own uh, way. And I love that show too. But I mean, you just can't not say you all did not write from these characters. Like you can't say that that didn't happen. Right, yeah, right. it's um, the designing women comparison comes up a lot. I think there's a lot of similarities there, but it's it's funny because that also was I would watch the Golden Girls, then designing women, then the nanny. That was like you know my favorite block of TV that was on cable, and so um, I love when when th- those two um, get compared. And I wanted to ask you about, or I guess highlight that that piece that you're saying like that the golden girls was the original sort of women ensemble cast without a man in it is what makes it progressive in the larger sense because i think that sometimes and you talk about this in the paper 
we get caught up on the fact that this show addressed really, you know, hard issues like homelessness, HIV, AIDS, which is progressive, but it wasn't unique, right? Like a lot of TV shows were doing that at the time. So um, I'd love to uh, ask you a little bit about that and how that sort of plays into um, the Golden Girls kind of being um, uplifted as such a progressive show. Um, definitely, definitely. Um, in one of the chapters, and I actually titled it, because, you know, they used to always say, like, in those, um, in that era, it was always, if you remember back to the ads they would show, it's like, and now for a very special episode of, you know, dot, dot, dot. So, um, I mean, in kind of looking at the social ramifications and social issues, I think you really kind of have to go back to, and I talk about this in the paper too, the Norman Lear School of Situation Comedy you know, in the, you know, early, really, well, not really early, but just throughout the entire 1970s, really. Um, because before that, you had shows where, you know, you had, you know, it was kind of like a soft light, soft touch. You did have shows like Julia with Diane Carroll, where, you know, she was a single mom on television and she was just there, it was, she was there, but there wasn't a hardcore pronouncement of it. Whereas I think right. with, Norman Lear's programming, it was very, you know, in your face, ab not abrasive, but just, he just really knocked that door down of, we're going to talk about this. We're going to be very blunt in how we talk about this. But I think, you know, the numbers speak for themselves and the fact that we're still sitting here talking about it, that impact was made. Um, but I felt like the Golden Girls kind of had a two-tiered approach a little bit about these issues. Um, and what I looked at specifically, the first kind of appear, uh, the first tier, I should say, was they were very direct in how they, depending on the issue. So one of the things I talked about was the episode 72 hours, which um, for folk, folks who may not remember, was the episode where Rose thought she could have potentially contracted HIV through a blood transfusion. And the entire episode is her, you know, worrying about, you know, does she have the illness or doesn't she? Um, and it's, you know, she's at the four, but it's also the other three roommates are there kind of supporting her through it and dealing with their own, you know, prejudices and assumptions and things about it. Um, I thought it was direct, but it also kind of still was a little indirect because they didn't make it or they didn't make the illness about sexuality in that case. Um, because obviously the easiest way they could have done that was, does Blanche have it? Because as any good fan knows, Blanche was very sexually free and liberated. And I thought it was kind of brilliant in a way for them to pivot towards Rose with it because they, you know, whether that was on purpose or, you know, just through, uh, you know, character plot or story plot, they took the morality piece away from it. And even there's this great monologue that Blanche delivers in it when Rose says, you know, like, why isn't it you dealing with this and why is it me? And, you know, Blanche takes her to task, like, wait a minute, and says, you know, this is not a punishment. I think that they were, you know, they sought to discuss it, but again, kind of in a little bit of a soft way that's made it accessible for people, I think, to get into. Um, and that was kind of, I think, the Golden Girls, uh, overall kind of reach when they dealt with these issues because another episode um, that I talked about was which was one of my personal favorites and I don't know I just thought it was really poignant um, if we remember brother can you spare that jacket where they dealt with homelessness um, and again hats off to the writers because it's just it really takes somebody special to come up with like specifically how they figured out we're going to address this topic you know for Sophia to have for them to hit the lottery and then for Sophia to give away the ticket by accident, and then for them to go search for it, end up in a homeless shelter. Like, it is, it is quite roundabout. <laughs> only on television, only on television, clearly. <laughs> but for them to still end up in the homeless shelter and for them to encounter these different people of the different ages to show like, hey, homelessness can happen to anybody at any time. And for them to, you know, again, have it be that these characters were you know clearly not a part of the regular cast and for the women to not end up you know being homeless or losing the house you know or something like that but to still address the issue exploring that situation with you know 
per, uh, you know, out of periphery characters, that was a, you know, really cool way of connecting to a, you know, a broader audience. Um, and the other thing that I really kind of got into was their take on homosexual or uh, on the LGBTQ community. And again, they were, I think, very indirect in how they handled it, although they kind of, and again, you know, I have never spoken to a writer of the show, so I can't say one way or the other what, you know, their intention was. But I think they had an opportunity at the very beginning to possibly make a direct, you know, statement that they kind of missed because, you know, for people who can remember the pilot, they had a, a live-in chef who was gay. And he, uh, I don't know if he didn't test well or, you know, who knows what the reason was, but he was never heard from again in the entire series. Like he was there, the, the pilot episode, and then he was just out. And never he just, heard from again. Poor no. Coco. Yeah, exactly. Sophia and, was Sophia was too funny. They that was the uh, you know they couldn't there wasn't comedic space for him uh, and Sophia could cook. That was kind of uh, why they bumped him out. But yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, my understanding is that yeah, she was supposed to be like a guest, and not in every episode. But like you said, she was so hilarious that they're like, this is who we go with. So you know, just one of those little anecdotes in television history, I suppose. Yeah, but, it's funny that you bring up the. Um, the sort of LGBTQ aspect of it because I recently saw um, something on Twitter and um, it was funny. It was basically like when Clayton's in the park and he meets up with Rose, there's uh, a couple in the background that looks like it could be two men. And then there was this whole Twitter thread about like, was Clayton cruising in the park, which I, I think is more well known now to masses. But, you know, for a long time, that was a very, very sort of like secret gay thing that happened. And, um, you know, they were speculating on whether or not there was a writer in the room who was like, oh yeah, he would, if he had just left the state that he didn't like, he would probably go to the park to like passively cruise. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. And, and you know, it just, it just holds up and it's also still identifiable by people within the community and people who are familiar with that practice. Um, and so I, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of those sort of little like nods, even when it's not as over, like you're, like you're saying. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you, and it's funny you bring up Gene and Clayton because I definitely, I mean, I, again, I go right into that in my paper. Um, but again, it was very indirect um, of how they addressed it. But it, but it maybe I don't know what they trying to. I mean, I can't say you know whether they were trying to save face with sponsors, the network, like who knows what was going on back then. Um, but but again, you know, it was a way of showing you know we're here. These things affect us too. Um, and even kind of Blanche's kind of whole come to Jesus, I think, you know, acceptance around her brother, because if again, we remember, and it's weird, or I shouldn't say weird, but it's interesting, because she was the one who was super, you know, sexually liberated, but then had these issues around her gay brother. Because if we remember, she was like freaked out about it at first, in, you know, typical situation comedy uh, formula. She comes around, is accepting, is okay, but you know, at the end of the twenty-two minutes. But what's interesting is she comes around by you know where he's like listing how he's like irresistible to men, and how there's how similar they are, and she's like, "My God, Clayton, you're me," you know, and it's exactly it's a perfect way. And you talk about this in the paper too, like of just they use the characters and that was the same thing you were talking about with homelessness and HIV and everything. They use the characters to figure things out themselves because they see a part of themselves reflected in another kind of community. And you, you talk about how they're marginalized in and of themselves, but it, it, it kind of is like the waterfall effect. Like the characters are finding themselves reflected in these other marginalized communities that they might not know very much about and then thus us as the viewers, and again, NBC, you know, it's America watching back in the original run. It's not just like a small niche group. They see themselves, you know, reflected in these ladies. Like you said, it, it probably would have been written off like, oh, those are just old people problems if they hadn't done it in that creative way. So it's funny that you bring up that Clayton scene because that's how I see that exact same thing happening to Blanche. Yeah, and one thing too, kind of the kind of, tie back into what I wrote about and thought about. Um, if you remember in the episode, the first one, because remember there were two with Clayton because it was interesting and interesting with that. Um, there was the one episode where we initially met him 
And then there was this, again, Blanche's whole journey of accepting him. But then remember when he brought Doug in mm-hmm. and she, and you know, the whole thing of him actually dating and being with, you know, somebody. And then again, it was a whole thing of Blanche having to accept, oh, my brother's actually a sexual person and having a partner and wanting to be married. And then remember Sophia being in the middle of it of saying, you know, some people like, uh, was it cats instead of dogs? And remember that whole bit. <laughs> and it's interesting that the oldest person in the house and the one who you would think of as maybe being kind of the most removed and the most conservative about the situation kind of was indirectly the most progressive about it. But then on top of that, remember her having a, I I, I, I don't know if we call him transgender or not because we never really met him, but the son who liked to wear women's clothing. Yeah, Uh, Phil. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, just, and I feel like with the Golden Girls, it was never necessarily a thing of, this is how you have to think. And they weren't preachy about it, but these were things that for you to think about. And to me, that was just the brilliance of the show, I thought. Yeah, totally. There must be homosexuals who date women. Yeah, yeah they're called <laughs> lesbians. <laughs> yeah. So in, in all of this, like you, you put so much thought and I, I love your paper because you put so much thought into really sort of answering the question of like, why does this show have such longevity, right? Like, why is it so appealing? And you've talked a lot about that, but you also frame it um, and, you know, just to dig into some of the scholarship here, you also <laughs> frame it in really interesting, already existing, like sort of academic theory. So three, three of them, which I'd love for you to just like, you know, talk about in, in layman's terms, sure, uh, sure. are you, you talked about the concept of multiple literacies, which is basically like different audience members can read a scene or a character or a situation differently. You talk about interaction ritual theory. So that's like the idea of like having positive emotions and being able to identify with the show, right? Like that's what we're all talking about. That's why we have this podcast. Um, and also the, and the third one was utopian performative, which I thought was fascinating, which is like the performers have, they construct this ideal space in the show that can be relevant to any audience, but like we were just discussing, like particularly for marginalized ones. So you can sort of like transmute different identities and relate to different marginalized identities, even if you're not part of that group. So that was, that was a big question, but basically. Yeah, no, I was like, we really kind of need to pick it apart here and unpack it. So so one theory, so we can do one theory at a time and I'm happy to go here. Um, So the first one, kind of the audience reception theory that you brought up. Um, So, and that's courtesy of Stuart Hall, who I did a lot of reading about when I was in graduate school. Um, And so with that theory, again, audience reception, multiple literacies, how something is read or interpreted. Um, I think with anything that we listen to, watch, read, whatever, you bring with you, you know, your life experiences to said text. Um, So with kind of the audience reception, multiple literacy idea, um, there are these kind of three it's kind of three tiered. There's first what they think of as dominant hegemonic. Um, So what that basically means is you as the viewer, the audience member, you're taking on exactly what the meaning was that the creator was hoping you would get from it. And you're accepting this theory, this text, this idea um, as, you know, this is a comedy, this is supposed to be funny. Um, You know, I'm supposed to accept this idea as, you know, these ladies are, you know, empowered there you know I mean you know that's kind of that's kind of the easy way of looking at it um then there's kind of this idea of what they refer to as the negotiated acceptance of it um you can take on the creator's idea or what they meant for you to take away from it um but then you still imbue it kind of with your own you know spin or your own ideas of what they were trying to tell you. So again, you're making negotiations for yourself with it. Um, And then there's kind of what we look at as the kind of counter, uh, counter dominant or counter hegemonic theory, if you will. So in other words, you basically essentially, you oppose it or you reject the theory of what they were talking about. Um, We're looking at four old women, like what? Like, that's not funny. Like that's, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, why, why, are we, why are we watching this? Why are we talking about this? Um, 
And so I think, and I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm wandering a little bit here. <laughs> no, this is great. Honestly, I feel like I'm truly understanding some of these concepts for the first time ever. And I'm in graduate school, so thank you for this. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, but kind of going back, and what was the, and I have to ask you because you definitely laid it out for me. What was that second theory? <laughs> the second theory was the interaction ritual theory. So okay. the idea of like, you you okay. defined it as like the feeling of a sense of identity and an ability to feel the positive emotions found in fan experiences. Absolutely. No, for sure. Um, and I think anybody who's a fan of anything can identify with this. Um, it's the whole premise of, you know, the again, the fact that we're all sitting here discussing this show, which for all of us, you know, based on our experiences, who we are, where we come from, um, what we were exposed to, what we, what we weren't exposed to. Um, it's like, you feel like you're a part of, I mean, I almost think of it as like being a sports fan. Like you feel like you're right. a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, I didn't do a lot with his work, but one person who I was exposed to in graduate school, um, a scholar by the name of Henry Jenkins, I think out of, I want to say maybe UCLA. It was a school in California. I can't quite remember the school. I think it was either like USC or UCLA. Um, but he did a lot with fandom and specifically looking at Star Trek. And he kind of wrote the, you know, really accepted work on, you know, this is what it means to be a fan. And, you know, talking about, you know, like, I don't really know if Golden Girls have necessarily had conventions and things, but there's definitely a lot of stuff, you know, I mean, but clearly there are books that have been written, you know, looking at the show and I'm a part of plenty of, you know, online forums and things, which I mean, now because of the internet, we all have forums, like everybody has a forum for everything to go to or to turn to. But, you know, he was talking about this, you know, way back when, when, you know, people physically got together and were fans of this. And so, I mean, that's really kind of what that's about is, you know, it's just this idea of, um, we're all, you know, we all feel like we're a part of something bigger that, you know, centers around this show. Um, and again, you know, we all appreciate it for different reasons, you know, whether it was our own grandmothers or which, I mean, I definitely have, you know, plenty of stories that I could tell about my own grandmothers that, you know, I feel like, you know, looking at that show and clearly my grandmothers were, you know, black women, but I still see some of them in looking at that show. I mean, I really do in different ways. Um, and then the other thing you asked me about with utopian, uh, the kind of this whole utopian performance idea, which came courtesy of one of my uh, chair members, Dr. Scott Mogelson, who is now in Washington State. Hi, Scott. Um, uh, because he was a, or he is, I should say, a theater scholar. And he really kind of brought me into this whole performance studies aspect of looking at how you know, sex and age is performed. But uh, kind of to circle back to the Jill Dolan uh, utopian performance piece, um, basically it is how you can construct something as, you know, if like, if the world was perfect, this is what this would look like. And in doing so, it's a performance, but obviously with any performance, what do you need or what, or what would you desire? An audience. And so, in performing, you open it up and you invite people in. And obviously, watching that show, we were invited into this world that, you know, for a lot of people, we kind of saw as a periphery because, I mean, or I would assume the majority of us, if we were lucky, I should say, had grandparents of, you know, if you were lucky enough to know them and have a relationship with them. Um, but even then, unless you maybe live with them, they were kind of people who you saw, you know, every once in a while when your parents took you around. Um, but, you know, you never really thought, you know, hmm, like on a consistent basis, like, you know, what were, you know, what are my grandma and grandpa, you know, like, you know, every single day? I mean, I never lived with my grandparents, you know, rest in peace, but, um, and I can't say I was, you know, thinking of them, you know, especially as a child, you know, growing up, I wasn't thinking of them every single, you know, day. But watching this show, it again, it gave me something to think about. And I think that, you know, maybe a lot of people kind of, you know, just saw different ideas of, or a different way of life, so to speak. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I think that um, 
this idea of imagining older women as like full people and obviously the the most sort of um the example that rises to the top is is blanche and her sexuality and like you know this idea of imagining women in their 60s their 50s 60s 70s as and 80s actually as sophia um as dating and pursuing sex and all of this is so sort of foreign i think to um a lot of people and i feel like the show really brought that to the forefront in a way that not many other forms of media do um and i wanted to ask you i think uh this was the second concept you talked about um basically around identification and how different you are as a person from Dorothy Spornak in terms of like your demographics, but that you were still able to identify with her. And I, you know, I find that to be so interesting and so typical, really. I feel like every time, you know, we talk to somebody about the show, they love it, you know, and they identify with whichever of the four girls they feel they're the most like. Um, and often it's, not somebody who shares any of their personal characteristics. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about why you identify with Dorothy. Sure. Um, I mean, for me, I think I've always felt a little bit different from a lot of people, um, not necessarily removed, but just like, you know, I mean, I grew up as a young, I mean, and I didn't necessarily have the terms for it then. But, you know, I was, you know, a gay black kid growing up in inner city Detroit and particularly in the 90s. I, I can't say I was ever, you know, beat up or anything like that, but I just sensed that somehow I stood apart and not necessarily even in a bad way, but it just, you know, you just kind of feel like you were on the outside. And again, I, you know, because I was a kid, you don't have the language to use but you, you get that sense. And then in watching the show and then particularly going into college and when I was having my awakening, if you will, um, you know, being teased lovingly, because I mean, I think if you look at Dorothy and how she was treated, you know, there was love underneath of everything. Like it was never a, you know, I mean, she would joke and say, you know, like, why do you always tear me down? You know, particularly with her mother because her mom did always make fun of her. But right. again, her mother loved her you know, underneath of it all, and she loved her mom. And they were, you know, for whatever, you know, little tips that they had, they were still very, you know, connected and bonded. And I can relate to that, you know, being made fun of, again, you know, not necessarily for people to put me down or to try to tear me apart, because that didn't happen, luckily. But again, you know, just, you know, good natured teasing and good natured ribbing, I would say. Um, and then also, I think just kind of my outlook in life, I do like to think of myself as, you know, I do think of myself as, you know, I am, you know, I, I think that I am somebody who's, you know, I have a voice of reason aspect to myself. Um, you know, I think I would ever, I would say if I lived in that house, I would have been her because I would have been the one who's like, you're doing what? Like you're involved with what? Like, why are you doing that? Like, you know, and, and then I guess too, like kind of that, I don't necessarily know if I'm the leader of the pack, but I always consider myself like, I consider myself like very protective over the people who I care about. And I always, you know, to myself, I say like, for somebody who I'm really close to, if you call me at three in the morning, I'm coming to get you. I'm going to ask questions later. And to me, that was, that's the Dorothy person I always think of, because that's how she was with them. And so I kind of always saw myself in that. Yeah, I, I love the idea of, just again these these mutable personalities and like like you you said like whoever whatever background people come into the show with it is written so well and in such a nuanced way that can both like represent everybody and then also these really individual characteristics at the same time and i think um yeah i can or i can already tell that you would be a great voice of reason as a <laughs> as a as a Dorothy roommate, you know, um, because it's interesting because I identify with Dorothy too. And I, I don't, I don't actually even pull going back to the multiple literacies concept. I don't actually pull the lone wolf out of her as much. I do pull the, I guess it maybe not lone wolf, but the, the difference element, like the setting aside and being different, but not following for me personally, like the ritual of like what a 
like a straight woman is supposed to be like and particularly when it comes to looks or sexuality or desire right like where she's I, I love the episode where she you know she's like when I find somebody worth going out with I'll go out with him you know <laughs> as opposed yeah. to you know Rose and, and Blanche of just being like a date a date a date it's just a date a date date and you're like she's like I know it has to be more than that for me and that um that that setting aside of her uh is is such a um it's not it's not something you see very often on tv even today honestly and it's uh it really does set dorothy apart in so many ways but then in exactly it's funny we're talking about kind of what sets her apart and what i identify with but then kind of the flip side of it and where i feel like some of b arthur's best comedic stuff came in was when she did kind of like buy into the kind of hegemonic you know norms of femininity if you will like one of the things i talked about in my paper um was the kind of the whole performance again of sexuality and of kind of female gender as we understand it you know as a whole in society specifically my personal favorite or one of my personal favorite episodes i should say journey to the center of attention where it's kind of the blanche versus dorothy kind of i guess I don't know if you call it a sing-off, dance-off, whatever off it was at the Rusty <laughs> Anchor, because- A sexuality have... off. Yes, we'll call it that, sexuality off. But when we look at um, Dorothy being kind of brought into this world where she really, you know, we never think of her as being a part, because she, again, she doesn't really go out of her way to get men's attention. And Blanche is like, oh God, you need to get out more. Like this is, because remember she was at home watching like, some documentary or something on television or just shucks it right off yes yes i'm like i know facts but i'm never good with the, well i'm not good with a lot of the quotes so this is awesome <laughs> but oh my god yeah. an iconic scene with the couch and the popcorn like i just you know that's my um my quarantine aesthetic <laughs> yes yes documentary that's me <laughs> But then when we get, but then when we enter the bar and we see her, you know, start like the guy who, like the one person who talks to her. And then, which I think if we all remember and help me here, I think, what was it? He was sitting at the piano and he's like, you know, do you sing? She's like, oh, a little. And then she starts to, you know, sing, what will I do? And then everybody starts to look at her and, you know, she's surprised. And then Blanche is too, like, wait, like what? Yeah. Like, how are you taking my thunder? Like I was doing this as a favor to you. Like, how dare you, you know? And then obviously it just trickles down, you know, from there. And then Blanche tries to, you know, outdo her in, you know, probably what is possible for me, Rue McClanahan's like funniest moment in that entire show. Um, you know, the whole, I want to be loved by, you, you know, and all that. And it just falls flat and is a disaster. <laughs> and literally. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember actually I did see an interview years you know later with uh, Rue McClanahan, and she said like that. She said that it was her favorite moment, but just how they had to choreograph that thing down to like the minutia to get that just exactly how they got it. Um, well worth the time and effort. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, it was fantastic. But again, you saw them behaving in a way you never think of older women like being competitive like that over men. That's something that, you know, we saw like, I mean, you know, if you watch the facts of life, that was like a 2D Blair, Natalie Joe thing to do. Like you never thought of like women past 50 is like they're fighting over a man. Like what? <laughs> like, you know? And then for them to do it the way that they did. But I will say one thing that I think overall the show was very intentional and good about they never cost them their dignity in anything that they did. So, I mean, like we're laughing at them, but it wasn't like, oh, you know, these poor women, it was just like, oh, okay. Like, this is really funny that they're in this situation for, you know, this episode. And then actually at the very end, remember, Blanche ends up in the bathroom because she's humiliated. And what does Dorothy do? She goes in there to comfort her. Cause totally. I mean, you know, in real life, you know, that could have been like a, I won, give me the drinks or, you know, give me your number, you know, whatever. But at the end of it, that family unit, which, you know, is very central to uh, the sitcom genre, they're back together again and they mend fences. And, you know, and then what, and then at the very end, what does uh, Dorothy say? Like, let's do a duet. And then, <laughs> and then Blanche is like, you know, do you know Crimea River? She's like, no, I don't. She's like, good, we'll do that. Great, we'll do that one. So, she's still Blanche. <laughs> yeah. 
Which I mean, again, you expect you expect like you're not offended or you're not upset because you expect that from her. So sure. I hope I, got, I know you asked me a lot of theory stuff in there, so I hope I got everything. No, <laughs> I mean that's that's really all of it. It's amazing. I think, and there's so there's just so many moments like like in the show that can be read in so many ways to different people's lives. Um, one thing that came in of uh, to mind when reading about like the multiple literacies, but also just even in the way what you described up front of how you could read it in the dominant hegemony or you could sort of do it with a twist or you could read it completely differently. Um, you know, the episode uh, Rose the Prude, really mm -hmm. early episode where um, Rose is gonna go with, with away with Arnie, which of course is Miles later on. Hey, yeah. We don't know that then. Um, and she's really concerned that, you know, he's gonna wanna sleep with her and the girls and, and Rose have this whole big conversation. Well, you know, Lauren and I on the episode that we did for Enough Wicker for that particular episode, Lauren brought up a really good point of like, it really reads as sort of a losing your virginity story. Yes. And it's, it's so fascinating because I, obviously I had felt that right and you the, the the viewer and you know the audience member knows that it's being written as like she's nervous again but it's all the same type of emotions right it's all those like pressures that you know women feel specifically and it's just like going through this whole thing like you said before Lauren you like never think of grandma's having sex but like you never think of grandma's like quote-unquote losing your virginity again well not when they have and six I, kids certainly. well right <laughs> particularly not then but <laughs> I just, yeah, I just, we forgot to put cheese between us. Um, <laughs> so it really was like her first. <laughs> it really was the first time, yeah. No, but um, I just, I thought that was such an interesting example of, of, those, of those readings, right? You could absolutely, somebody who is 15 years old and feeling pressures of sex could watch that episode, which is all having to do with like, feeling like you're cheating on a dead spouse. And <laughs> to your point, you've got six <laughs> kids and all of these things that seeming are so far away from the life that you're leading but you could sit there as a 15 year old virgin saying oh my gosh this is the same kind of emotion that i'm feeling it's just it's yeah. really well done and i and I, start, and I touched on that like very a little bit i touched on that in the paper like yeah just and rose honest honestly thinking of her which i mean to me that is the embodiment of the you know virginal you know innocent naive character which right you know kind of going back to a little bit of what i've talked about with the subgenre piece um, Char uh, Charlene from Designing Women, um, the Melanie character in Hot in Cleveland, if you watch that. Uh, I didn't really watch Sex and the City a whole bunch, but I think, was it, not Moran, uh, Charlotte. Charlotte, yeah, the, was it the Kristen Davis character, I think? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a hard, I mean, just that archetype, and it's just, or if you watch Living Single, Sinclair, the exact same thing. It's just those, it's just amazing how those archetypes just pop up you know in you know show after show after show just they change the appearance and the name obviously um and then the other thing that I looked at too or that I think that um kind of was a hit or a uh, or a trend if you will certain episodes like the one that I always just which again it just fascinates me so much how did we all meet every single show has the how did they meet episode oh yeah <laughs> and it's just like i mean hollywood i guess hollywood is a business of staples i suppose so they don't go too like it, like again you have to change you know for legal reasons you obviously have to change the names and the titles and things but it just astounds me of how no matter the series there's the you know if there's a certain genre involved it's how did we all come together because you literally saw it in all of the shows every single show had that episode and it's interesting too i i read i forget where i read it might have been a tweet where uh people were trying to correct like again we were just talking about how much more popular the golden girls have gotten and a lot of people now are talking about retirement saying like i'm gonna retire golden girl style and i'm gonna live with all my friends um and I, I think it was a tweet that was like correcting it's like well if you recall like they weren't friends before <laughs> like actually the way we met episode is a lot about how they struggled like hell to become friends yeah. <laughs> eventually but they were roommates and it was a necessary situation that they came together it wasn't a choice of like i'm already best friends with you and we get along so let's live together because it'll be fun it was like 
oh shit, I can't afford to live by myself. So right. just really yeah. fascinating. And it's, it's, it's just an interesting twist on that whole, like, we're all pals together. I mean, it was romanticized to a certain degree. And it's funny, you kind of hint, uh, touch on this. And I didn't do a whole lot of looking at that myself, but it was, like you said, it was a kind of circumstances kind of brought them, you know, into each other's lives. But, and you have to kind of think of the flip side of it. They clearly had struggles where they wanted to kill, there were times where they absolutely hated each other. Right, right. You know, and they couldn't stand each other. And it was just like, I mean, you know, and at the end of it, you knew like, okay, it'll be all right. But, you know, you did see them struggle. I mean, remember when, I think maybe the second or third season, where they ended up in the um, psych, uh, the psychologist's office to talk yeah. about because they were like, we can't take this and we can't deal with this. And then again, the wise elder, you know, rises to the top, so to speak, where Sophia explains, you know, it's life. Like, you know, it's not always going to be sunshine and puppy dogs, you know, with anything. But, you know, we're here, we're together, we're making this work. Like, you know, get on with it. Yeah, I, we always, we talk about this a lot, but I love the um, the times at which they threaten to move out and then do move out don't ever line up with like the indiscretions that were committed, you know, like Rose <laughs> Rose decides that she's going to be more active and have these like beach friends and whatever. And then she just moves out and comes back with no, no, no ceremony, nothing. She just like comes back, has a key. But when like, I don't know, there's like all of these other seemingly larger conflicts and they're like oh it's it's fine you know like there's no the proportion of the level of anger and reaction does not always meet the crime <laughs> well there, well that's what i think of as narrative necessity honestly <laughs> i mean because yeah like the episode yeah what was it the episode where uh because of the stupid double exposure pictures where they <laughs> yeah. Rose has slept or no Rose thought Blanche has slept with her husband or whatever and like hey look me over it's one of my absolute favorite episodes name Chuck yeah but the thing about it is is that for her to for Rose to think that and like you said it wasn't like a I I mean well I guess there was the you know we can't be friends or we won't be friends anymore for a while but like you said there was never like I can't live with you more like I'm out of here I'm gonna you know I'm going to live with my kids you know that, that didn't happen and to me, that's like a that that's the ultimate betrayal is like one of your friends goes and sleep goes and sleeps with your you know spouse or your mate. Like my God, you're an animal. <laughs> one of the best scenes. And here's Blanche in bed with a punt. <laughs> oh man. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. It so, is. Jared, I want to ask you one thing. I love the end of your paper because you use this closing quote where you say, the show consistently reifies one of my most fervent beliefs that we are all the same and far more have far more in common than we sometimes realize. So I, I love this idea. And this kind of goes back to that sort of fan, you know, theory identity is that like, you know, all, all the people listening to this podcast right now, like you're, you're here. And if you've made it this far, it's like, because we, we love this shit, you know, it's, we, we yeah. really love talking about this fan community, but it's because it makes us feel closer together. Right. And like all of these elements and these academic concepts you talk about in your paper are just reinforcing really, really important, you know, lessons that are either, you know, hit hard on the head or presented subtly, like we discussed um, about the human condition, right? And that it's just like, whether you're an old lady, you know, an old white lady uh, from Sicily, an immigrant living with, you know, weirdo roommates from Minnesota at all in Florida, or, you know, whether you're a young gay black kid growing up in Detroit eating chili cheese fries, or, <laughs> you know, obnoxious, loudmouth New Jersey and white ladies uh, like we are. Um, <laughs> That we can all we you know and and again like new fans fans that were in diapers when the show was way off the air let alone when it came on the air um everybody really seems to have a have a piece of this so um yeah I, can you talk a little bit more about just like the moments in the golden girls that just make everybody feel human oh sure um well kind of I'll definitely get to that in one quick second. But yeah. one thing that I have to hit on from my, again, from kind of my academic background, and one of the things that we were taught to think about when I was in graduate school, it is a master of arts in popular culture. And 
popular culture as we defined, as it was defined under my school was it's everyday life. Popular culture is everyday life. It's some, you know, this is a sliver of it. Like obviously looking at TV and then specifically this show is a sliver of it, but it's everyday life. And clearly if you're a living, breathing human being, you're living everyday life. So, you know, whether you're black, brown, white, yellow, green, red, whatever, you're living in everyday life. And again, looking at, you know, not just the Golden Girls, but any show, you can see something of yourself in that, you know, again, whether it's something that you've lived or you know somebody who's been there or been through that. I mean, we're all affected by illness, death, age, sex. Like every single one of us is touched by these things. And, you know, it just so happens that these characters, you know, reinforced how, you know, this is a very specific telling of how we're affected or how they're affected, but you can see something and say, you know, oh, like, you know, I lost my husband. I lost my, you know, child. Because remember, that's like, to me, that was just, man, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> but if you remember the episode um, where Phil dies, Doesn't and I matter. honestly think, if I'm correct, and please, please correct me if I'm wrong, but if I honestly think, I think that is the one time in that entire show where Sophia like cries and like really cries. Yeah. And it's I not think so. when she No, it's not. Like that that one sure. is, it's such a tough episode. To, I, I feel like I have probably seen that episode less than, I don't know, much less than any of the others, but I probably have only ever watched it like three times. If that one comes on, I, I don't watch it. It's hard. It's yeah. hard. I mean, because it talks about, I mean, which, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's a reality that many people have lived through. But I watched that in like every single time. And it's not like I necessarily go to the full boohoo. Like I'm sure I did at one point, but but still just Sophia and Estelle Getty, rest in peace. She was never better than in that episode. And then the whole thing, you know, and it ties together at the very end, you know, she delivers that monologue of, you know, I did, cause you know, she's so critical of, you know, him being a, you know, cross-dresser. I don't know if he was fully transgendered or, you know, I'm, we just don't know cause we never saw him or her, I'm just not sure. But, but again, um, when she goes and delivers that piece about, you know, I did love him. He was my son. He was my little boy, you know, but what did I do or what did I say? And she felt like it was her fault somehow that he was the way that he was. And then when she says, my baby is gone and just like, literally just the flood works, just God. (laughs) It's so tough. It is. And I think that it is, um, you know, as heavy and as um, just gut-wrenching as that scene is, there's you get the sense that she did accept him right like even if it was after he was gone or even if it was um sort of begrudgingly i guess she she comes to fully accept him and his habit that he had of wearing women's clothes because she has to right because he's he's buried in a teddy that's like the whole thing um <laughs> a and masculine so it, teddy remember <laughs> a masculine teddy. <laughs> right the guys from his poker game show up it's a whole thing but yeah i think that that's that is such a, a powerful scene and um it really does it brings up just you know like raw sadness with this kind of like regret but also acceptance it, it's a it's a very very heavy scene for any sitcom um and and certainly yeah. for this one and but I also but again kind of getting back to the kind of social issues piece of it too again these are all just you know things that people have dealt with and are faced with whether and something and I didn't go into this at all in my work but you know us talking about it makes me think of it but addiction because remember there were two now and that was a time when they were uh when they were directing how they handled it because remember you had the painkiller addiction that Rose had which interestingly enough, she was able to shake in like one episode. <laughs> yeah, she never heard of her going to like rehab or like, you know, anything like that. Or well, no, she went to rehab and she came back, but then she never like had to go to like an AA meeting or, you know, a, I don't know, like a narc meeting. NA, or, NA or, meeting, yeah. yeah. She was totally fine. Yeah, she yeah, had this addiction is, for 30 years. Just went for like a month, came back, she was fine. <laughs> yeah, and again, but again, you know, very 
typical situation comedy stuff. Um, and then Dorothy and the Gambler. Again, you know, God knows how many millions of people are affected by that. And I think that that show, you know, not unlike other shows, but since we're talking about the Golden Girls, you know, that's how they connected and how they got you was, you know, those are things that, you know, I don't care if you're, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever. Those are things that, you know, whether it comes to you because it's you with the addiction or with the issue, or, you know, it's your mom, your dad, your cousin, you know, whoever, those are very human things that we've all, you know, are impacted by or know people who are impacted by. And I think that, you know, it opens the door to generate an audience to connect with. Yeah, and going back to what you said about, it's the same situation with addiction as it is with HIV AIDS, that it does affect such an incredible cross-section of people and various demographics, even though in popular culture, and even today with addiction, it's the same thing. You know, it's, it seems like it's such a narrow wim- uh, window of the type of person who struggles with addiction or the type of, you know, whether type of person who gambles, the type of person who contracts HIV AIDS. So it's, um, it's really incredible how much they were able to do that work and, and do it, you know, specifically with regards to these issues that are near universal. Yeah. And I don't know. And again, I, one thing that I kind of, I've still kind of flirt with this idea, like of trying to like reach out to, but I have no idea how it even, how you remotely go about doing that but of like trying to reach out to like Susan Harris or Mark Cherry, um, who gave us Desperate Housewives actually, by the way, um, or even like Betty White, like people or something like, I did this like all these years ago, you know? And cause I mean, it would just be cool to like, I don't know, get, like somehow get my, like get my thesis signed or something, you know? <laughs> if you all see this, I'll send you my address. But- um, Yes, <laughs> call him. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but like, I mean, I know like Mark Cherry was an openly gay man. So I don't know how much of his life he did or didn't infuse into, you know, into these topics. Um, but I mean, I would imagine that, you know, like any creative person, you a lot of times take liberties out of your life or take pages from your own life and put them into your art. So- I mean, you know, I, I just wonder kind of how does that factor into it too? But again, people having human experiences and translating it into art and, you know, it being something so, you know, just massively open that we all could identify with. Um, That's the great part about writing, right? You, you always insert yourself um, even a little bit. It's the same way of having the audience readings that you take from it, what your experiences have been. Yeah. One thing I've kind of thought about and is that if I wrote this paper today or if the show, or actually if the show was on today, like what would be different? Um, Like I kind of wonder, you know, would one of the women be gay or something, you know, or which I could totally see it like being, for some reason, I don't know. I could totally see it like being Rose for some reason. (laughs) Like, I mean, seriously, like I could totally see it being today if that was done her going on the date with Gene, like Gene expressing the interest in <laughs> the next, going to dinner or something together. Or with mental health, I think, becoming such a kind of a thing in uh, more people being open and talking about it, I think could see it as, you know, one of them having, you know, depression of some sort. Because, I mean, they did have the thing where they kind of, again, they touched on it, where I think specifically thinking about Blanche and like remember at the I think was it the very first episode of season two where she hits menopause Mm -hmm. and she you know loses her mind because she's like because but again with her her whole thing is you know she's very sexually viable and she feels like that's the end for me and clearly it wasn't but she was afraid (laughs) of that and I just think you know if it was done today just how would it look different and I think you know that's an idea yeah I think that um that it's interesting to think about. I think that the Golden Girls was great on a lot of fronts um, in terms of representation, progressivism and things like that. But it also, you know, it's it wasn't perfect. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of missteps. Uh, you know, obviously I think sort of the biggest one is their, um, 
the issue of race and how um, there, you know, there are characters of color, but a lot of them are stereotypes. You know, there's like the literal mammy who comes in and then there's, um, of course, all of the controversy surrounding the mixed blessing episodes, which I actually think the concept of the mixed blessing episode was great. And, and I think to show like an interracial marriage an interracial relationship at that time, they, you know, like you could see what they were trying to do, but there's some fair criticisms, I think, around yeah. that as well. And actually, that's something I saw in one of the fan forums on Facebook that I'm a part of. People were like, wait, like they actually were attempting to, they weren't being racist. They were actually trying to like bring this up and be responsible. And you mean to tell me they're pulling this? And literally because rose had on like the she had on, and it wasn't even like black clearly was it blackface but it was a uh, mud pack it, but that's what it looked like so they were like we don't want to be offensive so we're gonna just pull this and so it's just like you said it was kind of the irony of the irony of kind of the narrative <laughs> right it, so one of uh, a, a great scholar that everybody should follow on twitter is stephen thrasher and he wrote an amazing piece uh uh, for Vulture, um, which we, we don't have to go into now, but just of all the actual problematic things in the series that, you know, wasn't really tackled properly as opposed to like, yes, like mixed blessings, there was mud on the face, it was construed as blackface. But again, as we were discussing here, that that wasn't the intention of the episode, but there were, were a lot of like missteps in terms of intention. So I think on, sure. on if the show was on air today, I think that a lot of that would be a race. We would be way more in tune with, with a variety of different issues that were not handled well in the eighties. Um, but, and I also think to your point, Jared, where you're saying like the main characters, right? You, you did have different sorts of representation, but you didn't have representation that was a, like variety in the main characters, right? They're all no. white women. They're all, they're all, you know, straight. They're all of a certain, you know, um, demographic and means, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, not, not terribly well off, but also definitely not struggling in the way that uh, other characters could be. So it's just really, it's, it's fascinating to, to think about that. I also, I just every time I use, I do this thought experiment because I think we're asked that a lot. You know, what would it be like today, the Golden Girls today? Um, I, I think so much of it would stay the same because so much of the the writing and the interpersonal interactions and the nuances of the characters and the same the realities of living with roommates who are also your friends, like we discussed before. Like you're gonna have tiffs, you're gonna have arguments. There's gonna be things that blow up here and there. There's gonna be teasing. There's gonna be hurt feelings. There's gonna be competition. I, that all would stay the same to me. I, that all yeah. like just totally. You know, we're approaching forty years. Be, you know, <laughs> very close mm -hmm. to when it went on the air. That's crazy. It you is. know, that's it it's is. really wild to say that. I think a lot of it would be the same. I can't even say that for stuff like even 10 years ago sometimes. Yeah, um, and think about it, there are certain shows that were on at the same time. And I mean, including there are shows that stand up too alongside it, but there's just as many, if not more, where we just like it's oh yeah, that was on. But <laughs> nobody but it just doesn't have but it doesn't have that same fandom attached to it the way that right. we do. Yeah, and I, I think also, I still don't feel like audiences are super used to seeing four old, multiple old women and no. no men as like the center of the show. So I feel like that alone um, would sort of shine today as much as it did in 1985. Sure. And th thinking about that, um, just what could this look like today, you know, what would it look like today? I mean, that is that is a very viable question. Um, but I mean, that is kind of where the fun is. I think it, you know, okay, so we had the Golden Girls, but you know, this is our spin on it. Cause I mean, even with, you know, looking at, uh, which I feel like is one of the more recent shows, which wasn't terrible, wasn't great, but wasn't terrible. But like, if, did either of you ever get into uh, Hot in Cleveland at all? I watched it. <laughs> I watched it for Betty White. Yeah, I, I mean, Valerie Bertinelli, I really liked all of the women on yeah, it. It was yeah. like a fine background show. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, just amazing that Betty White too is, is she was basically the Sophia character on that show. Mm -hmm. And it was on for so many seasons. 
and she that was in like the 2000s i think so how wild to be in this the, the golden girls which is obviously like iconic right and then you would think that maybe that would be it for her career but no like she's still she's still going now yeah. um i i just feel like you know the representation the efforts to put older women on tv is it's happening i feel like grace and frankie is like the, the yeah. pinnacle of that you know i mean like lily tomlin totally. and jane fonda doesn't get any better than that um but i think that even that which jared you you definitely touched on this in your paper like that can be and should be traced back to the golden girls because we need to be comfortable with the fact that older women first of all exist and also have real lives and um i think that part of getting society to that place comes through pop culture and tv yeah definitely i mean again kind of like i said the school that i come from is pop culture or popular culture it's everyday life that's something that you know again no matter where you are what you look like even what experiences you've had you walk and live even if the circumstances are different you still live life every single day that is something that no matter the circumstances we all do and so and i think that just that really is kind of like my approach to you know academia really because of again the school that i came from um it's just something that we all go through and just i'm lucky enough to connect which for me that's one of the things that i you know one of the gifts i've been given as a fan of the show is to connect with so many you know really thousands at this point of people who you know happen to love the same thing that i love which is this you know fantastic show like even you know before we you know talk today i was kind of sifting through my notes and you know uh preparing for this and literally because it's on hallmark channel right now um i literally watched a couple of episodes as i'm like reading like you know oh things to talk about <laughs> i mean you know and i'm laughing you know and thinking i mean i mean but again it's but that's the richness of it that's the richness of it and that's kind of the cool thing is to connect with and you know be able to talk to people about it we always laugh about that all the time it's like our homework is to watch tv sounds great this is awesome yeah but with that said the kind of <laughs> the downside of it i'm not gonna lie because yeah people when i was when i was originally in grad school back then or people said to me you know oh like your whole job is to watch or your whole homework is to watch tv it's like yeah but it's that's a part of it but that's not that's the part whole. yeah that's true it's that's true. not the whole bit of it because <laughs> i think i told you guys you know prior to us talking i'm not even kidding you i think when i was done with my paper i could not go near an episode for about three to six months oh yeah I oh yeah i just wanted like it came on a tape i got hurt dun, 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 and i was like catch it turn it off change channel <laughs> but i will say by the time it got to hulu in 2017 I actually, the day, and I will never forget this, I was lying in bed, and I had to work that day, but I literally cut on my computer the day it went on Hulu and started watching from, like, I watched it from beginning to end all the way through. That's a dedication. That's what we're after. Um, I just, I want to also bring up a really great quote from the one and only Bell Hooks, where she actually says, popular culture is where the pedagogy is. And it's just, it's such a true statement. So she's, she talks about it's where the learning is, whether you're learning about race or class or gender, or just Absolutely. like all other people. And like, that so ties in with it, it's real life, right? Like this, and this is why this show is just so compelling. It's it's real life. And that's why we try to learn from it. Love me some Bell love her, love her. Oh, but, yeah. um, but again, like you said, it is just something that you can if you if you're willing to open your eyes so to speak you can learn from it and take something away from it and it's more than just you know being entertained and laughing at it if you if you can challenge yourself to really think about it and to go there as they say <laughs> well that is beautiful i love it thank you so much for being here today yes, and sharing you. your paper with us all right, super fans, uh, check out enoughwicker.com for the link to Jared Clayton Brown's paper. And thank you for being a friend.